Well, hello everyone. I'm so glad I get to welcome uh, Dr. Lynn Kohak. She is an outstanding a New Testament scholar. I've appreciated her work over the years. Um, I was just talking with Dr. Kohak before we you know, came on camera, so to speak, and I was telling her how much I've appreciated her work, Women in the World of the Earliest Christians, Illuminating Ancient Ways of Life. So Lynn, welcome to our podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Rodney. It's great to be talking with you today. So um, Lynn currently serves as the provost, and uh, do you do some teaching as well at Northern Seminary? Mm -hmm. And so how long have you been there at Northern? Two years. Chicago, yeah. right? I mean, it's in, technically, it's is it Lyle, Illinois? Is that right? It is. So it's a suburb, western suburb of Chicago. Yes. Yeah. What a great work you're doing there. Uh, and you. before that appointment, you f served as provost at Denver Seminary. For, yes, I did. For several years. That's right. Yep. And then you spent the bulk of your teaching career, to this point anyway, at Wheaton College. That's right. Yeah. About 18 years at, at Wheaton, going up through the ranks of the professor world. <laughs> so uh, Lynn is our go-to scholar when we want to know all things, the life and ministry of women in the early church and the, the, uh, the New Testament world, um, not only because of her work here uh, published by Baker Books, but also Lynn has written several commentaries. Most recently, she's written a commentary on Ephesians for the New International Commentary Series. Is that right? I'm That's a right. confess, Lynn. I don't have a copy yet, but I will because you were such a careful, very, very insightful scholar. So thanks so much for joining us. And pretty much what we're going to talk about today is very much within Lynn's wheelhouse. And that is what, what role or what was the life and ministry of women in the early church? Because I think typically we work with a kind of a prejudiced, almost stereotype uh, where we assign women almost no uh, significant influence at all, but that's obviously not the case and for a variety of reasons. But I want to start with this point. I want to work from this point and work outward, and that is this. Lynn points this out in her book. The Samaritan woman that Jesus encounters in John's Gospel, chapter 4, is not an immoral woman. Right? Well, you're right. Yeah. And so we're starting off with the easy one. Is that is that it, Rodney? Just it's, a softball? That, well, <laughs> it, yeah. But here's the thing, Lane. I mean, yeah. you, you, be, you know how many people import assumptions into that story and how many preachers of us are guilty of claiming something that's not in the text? Of course, we do this all the time. And that's what careful scholarship is about, is pointing out, now, wait a minute. You say that's what the text means, but let's read the text more carefully. So it's, it, I, I marvel over how quickly we make the assumption about her. On the one hand, she's held up as this kind of amazing dialogue partner with Jesus, an amazing example of evangelism. You know, we, we kind of exalt her, but then just as quickly take it away by somehow obscuring her importance with a claim that she, you know, that she's an immoral person. So, yes, let's start there. Let's talk about why it's not necessarily so. Jesus said you had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. And people infer, oh, she must be an immoral person. That's not the case. The text doesn't say so. Let's start there and then move our way into what, yeah, wh why do we do that? And then what about some other significant women 
in the life and ministry of Jesus as well as the early church that will help us appreciate um, maybe the assumptions that we come to the text with that we need to perhaps uh, um, question ourselves. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, she is certainly a favorite story of mine, um, favorite character of mine in the in the Gospels. And I think you touch on a very significant aspect of our reading of her as compared to, let's say, David. David is held up as a man after God's own heart, which I have no problem with. It's what the Bible tells us. He also committed adultery. And you don't have, he doesn't bear that stain. He's not forever. We allow him to have repented and then move on. But when women are accused of sexual immorality in the biblical text, which Samaritan woman is not, but that, that charge of sexual immorality stays with the woman, whether it's correct or not, and tends to remove really any credibility that she has then and now. And that's why I I am so passionate about us getting the Samaritan woman right, um, because it, it, um, if we don't, then we miss how she represents true discipleship for us. So I tend to think that we, when we read the Samaritan woman, we assume um, certain things are typical and certain things are atypical of the story, but we actually get uh, what's typical backwards from what is atypical. Let me tell you what I mean. It's typical for a woman to gather water for her uh, family, um, and it's not a problem at all that she goes at noon. It the only reason we know she's going at noon is because Jesus is hot and tired and you tend not to be hot and tired at seven in the morning. But there's no evidence that she's an outcast. There's People just build this whole structure around the fact that she goes at noon, but there's just simply not evidence out there that it's a problem that she goes at noon. I could imagine maybe she's even going for a friend of hers who let's say needed an extra jar because she needed to do more washing or one of the kids knocked over the jar of her water. And and so she's, that is the Samaritan woman is helping out one of her neighbors. I mean, there's so many reasons for why she might be getting water and none of them suggest that she's an outcast. Well, and let me just add this, throw another wrinkle in. And and I, I'm not so sure, and this is beside the point, that she really goes at noon. John says the sixth hour. If that's Jewish time, it's noon. But when he tells the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, it's obvious he's using Roman time. So it's possible it's the end of the day. After a long journey, Jesus would still be, as you say, tired, wanting something to drink. So you're exactly right. We weave this whole, it's not in the text, but isn't it amazing how we dump all this in there, trying to characterize her in a kind of shady way, even in a salacious way when we talk about her background, and yet that's not there. It's, it makes no. perfect sense, as you say, just to take the text as it is, that women would make several trips sometimes to the well anyway, reg- depending upon why they were there. And so now that we've set that aside, talk to us, Lynn, about this whole thing, this kind of repartee between Jesus and the Samaritan woman with regards to her past. Right, right. Well, and again, some people will say she raises a theological question with Jesus and she's trying to get off subject. 
um, because he asks her how many husbands she has, and he tell and and he says, you know, you have a. She says, I, I don't have a husband. Uh, the man I'm with now is not my husband. And Jesus says, what you've told me is true. You had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the word true used in John's gospel is predominantly, if not always, used in a positive way. Now, we know Jesus can critique sin when he finds it, but he's not doing that here. In fact, what I think he is doing and what she says is you're a prophet. And what Jesus is doing is acting prophetically here. He's telling her that he knows her. Now, most women in the ancient world were described or known based on the male relatives in their family, their father, their husband, their son. And so for her to um, to be connected in some way with husband was um, just a normal way of understanding women. What I think we want to do is go back in John's gospel to the story of Nathaniel. In, in that story, um, Nathaniel comes to Jesus and Jesus, this is in chapter one, and Jesus says, as he's watching Nathaniel come, here's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. And Nathaniel responds, how do you know me? And Jesus says, oh, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. Now, the word Israelite is a theologically loaded term. It means, doesn't mean Jew in that sense. Jesus is saying, you are a dedicated follower of God. And how would, how would Jesus know that? How do, and Nathaniel says, I'm so surprised that you know that. But when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, then uh, Nathaniel makes a profession of faith. Well, the Samaritan woman is a Samaritan. <laughs> so she's not going to make She's not an Israel. Uh, she's not a Jew. She's not going to make the same claim as Nathaniel would, but she does declare that Jesus is a prophet. The fact that she has had five husbands is remarkable. Um, I know of only one other person in the first century who would have been married five times, and that is um, wow. One of Augustus's, yeah, one of Augustus's friends, Agrippa, was married. Uh, four times. And when he died, he was married to his fifth wife. Two of the wives died and twice he divorced. We have um, kind of closer to home, the granddaughter of Herod the Great, Berenice. By the time she was 22, she had been married three times. Wow. She had been widowed. Yeah. She'd been widowed twice and she'd been divorced once. Then, um, uh, a little later on, uh, she was connected with Titus, the general Titus, whose father Vespasian became uh, emperor. Titus is the general that destroyed um, Jerusalem in 70 AD. So Bernice was his lover. So that would mean she was connected with four men. She wasn't married to Titus, um, but they were connected uh, lovers. Um, so I guess what I want to say is that it, if Jesus had said to the Samaritan woman, I I know you've been married three times, that would have been like, oh, that's a good guess. And maybe if he had said four times, and that was accurate, be like, oh, okay, that's kind of a pretty good guess. But five times, that's remarkable. Jesus knows her in that most... Um, prophetic uh, way. <laughs> prophetic way, exactly. And that's what she 
that's what she sees. And that's why she asks him religious questions. And that's I think right. here's another thing. People just have trouble imagining that uh, biblical women and some women today even, but biblical women <laughs> actually care about theology, <laughs> actually are religious. You know? It can and be so, incredibly uh, insightful. <laughs> exactly. You know, and so she's. She's curious. She's she is a human who is curious about who God is and is wanting to worship God in in the right way and and know God. And so Jesus responds with with her questions by by saying who he is as the living water. Um, And so there's nothing odd about her asking religious questions. She's not trying to deflect things away from some kind of sin in terms of having these husbands. And here's another point to note. In the ancient world, the uh, women could not represent themselves uh, independently in court. So she would have needed a guardian, a male guardian, and it may have been like an uncle or just a neighbor, a male neighbor, that would uh, would sign a divorce proceedings if she wanted to initiate divorce. So here she is in a village. I don't know how big it is, but it's not like Rome. You know, there's, I don't know, a couple hundred people. We don't know. And in that village, she has, she's going to divorce serial, like she's going to divorce four different men. This is how some people try to put her life, you know, reimagine her life. Well, for each of those divorces, there would have to be someone, a man, who would sign for that. She can't just do it independently. She is not Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> All right? well, like we glamorize a uh, Samaritan woman, I think. <laughs> so she's Liz Taylor. That's not the case. Um, I think that she had a very difficult life. Well, as many people did, you know, like Berenice, uh, a princess, Nevertheless, was widowed twice before the time before she was 22. So life expectancy was so low. Um, and maybe there was a man who divorced her. Some people say, well, she got she was divorced so often from, by men because she was barren. I just first of all, they they didn't always um, in in the Roman culture, they they wouldn't divorce for barrenness because uh, adoption was easy to do. I don't know in the Samaritan culture if that would have also been the case, but during this time in um, uh, in the Greco-Roman world, uh, the Romans only uh, accepted uh, marriage monogamy the way we have marriage today. However, you do have polygamy. We have examples, not a lot, but we have a few examples of polygamy among uh, Jews. Um, there's one um, finding that we um, that was found along the Dead Sea. Uh, Babatha is her name, and she was actually married at the same time as a, another woman was to. Um, to to a man and when when that man died the two wives were contesting his property so we have all of we have her documents including a dowry document um so it's possible that this samaritan woman the man that she's with now um not being her husband maybe she um was like a second wife which i i think jesus would not have seen as uh, God's best. You know, he talks about the two becoming one flesh and understanding marriage in that 
monogamous way. Um, it's also possible that after having these, having been married five times, that um, the man that she's with now is treating her as a concubine, which is a category, a legal category where it was pretty common in, in the Greco-Roman period, in part because marriage between two different classes of people um, became more complicated. Um, and so uh, you, you, could, you could take a, a woman as a man, you could take a woman and be semi-formal with her as your concubine. She could be accused of adultery if she had sex with anyone else. But the big thing was, if there were any children from that union, they would not inherit. So one oh. of the thoughts I have, again, you know, we, we have, no one knows, but a possible scenario is that this woman is a concubine because the man she's with is a bit older or maybe has adult children, and he does not want to um, distribute his inheritance um beyond the the adult children so he doesn't want to uh if there is a child with this union they they won't inherit i mean there's and and there that would not shame her to be a concubine mm. in the in in that maybe it's a roman soldier they weren't technically allowed to marry mm -hmm. while they were in the service and we know roman soldiers were throughout um uh, judeo and galilee so uh you know that there's just different scenarios. And I, I go to all that length to say, at the end of the day, why I think she's not immoral, aside from the fact that Jesus never calls her that, is that the town believed her testimony. And that's what you brought up at the very beginning. The town believed her testimony. And I can't find places where a whole town, right, including the men, right. She walks into town. She says, I think I found the Messiah. Right. And they believe her. And and because she says, he told me everything I've ever done. Boy, Lynn, you've put so much on the table. And I've got like 300 questions just bouncing around in my head. Well done. All right. So let me, let me just throw a few things in and then and kind of explore even more something of her background and the significance of the just how we put a template over the story and we start reading in a particular way and the momentum takes you in a particular direction. And it's built perhaps on the, not the most insightful assumptions. Okay. Uh, regarding the whole thing about, well, maybe she's been divorced because she's barren. You're exactly right. You've got several examples of virtuous couples, old virtuous couples, going back to the founding of Israel, Abraham and Sarah, for goodness sake, but also Elizabeth and Zacharias. So they're married long. So there was no, there wasn't a sense in Jewish culture, especially to to divorce your wife because they, they are not producing children. You're so right. And secondly, Talking about her background, you know, I think it's an incredibly insightful uh, comment you made when you say, you know what, for Jesus to say, you've had five husbands, 
was more than an educated guess. It was incredibly insightful on his part, and she sees it for what it is. And isn't it true that the Samaritans, they had their own Pentateuch anyway. They had their own Bible, you might say, and that Samaritan version of the laws of Moses was different from what we have in our Bible, the Jewish version. And one of the things they kept looking forward to was a prophet like Moses. So when she says to him, you're a prophet, I I find that an incredible stretch. I mean, she's being so generous because they're looking for a Samaritan Moses. They're looking for a Samaritan Messiah. And here's this Jewish man she knows is, is not a Samaritan. And yet, because of his prophetic insight about her, she says, you're, you, you're a prophet. You've got to be the prophet. And I, I marvel how quickly people diminish that profession, and yet Jesus didn't diminish it at all. Like you say, he treats her with a huge amount of respect as a very, very legitimate conversation partner discussing very weighty theological things. Uh, so and it's the longest, yeah, excuse me, and it's the longest dialogue, I think, in the Gospel of John. And that's where John, in these dialogues, like with Nicodemus in the previous chapter, this is where a lot of the theology happens in John. And so the fact that he extends the conversation, Jesus extends the conversation, yeah, and how I, what a contrast with the disciples. That's exactly right. Who have been also in the town. That's (laughs) exactly right. Go, Lynn, go. They're shocked. Yeah, yeah. They're shocked that he's talking with her, and they have not testified at all in in that town. Uh, It's a real—and that, I mean, quite honestly, for me in my own life, I get— challenged by that. How often am I like the disciple instead of like the Samaritan woman? But you see, if I've misread the Samaritan woman, if I've seen her as an immoral woman, which you just can't scrub out, you know, no matter how many times she says she repents, right? Then I lose that con- that sharp contrast that the Bible is drawing. And I'm I'm less likely to say, I want to grow up and be the Samaritan woman. I want to grow up and be so attuned theologically to what's happening around me that I'm always talking about it because I'm sure that's not the first time when she went back into the village. It's not the first time she ever talked with other people about um, uh, theological things. I mean, they had their own meeting places and and conversations, um, not like synagogues, like we might think of like synagogues. And so, yeah, I, 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 the the townspeople, it was almost like they were ready to believe, well, it wasn't almost, they were ready to believe her. And I, and that's because that was her character. And, and so Jesus, he, he saw that. And she and, has credibility with the men. I mean, she, it, it, John emphasized, she goes to the men and the, who are in a, a male dominant world, as you say, they are the guardians of their community. They're the... And so when they believe her and they decide they're going to go see for themselves who this person is, they don't dismiss her as some hysterical woman, some hysterical immoral woman. It's because I would suggest she has already earned the reputation of being an insightful person. And they hear, oh, really? Let's go see this man. Um, And then I want to fold in one more thing about the background, you know, Whatever her situation is, as hard as a life as it was for a woman, having to have legal representation for a man, to be covered by a man and socially, um, 
there is a difference between morality and honor. There's a difference between shame and immorality. And and in their world, just because you are in a shameful circumstances, it doesn't mean you're immoral. And I think that's the Western assumption because we put those things together. So it, it was indeed probably somewhat shameful that she has either as a concubine, whatever her circumstances are. Um, there's even a chance that the one she's with, there's no sexual relationship at all. Isn't it possible? It could be like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It could be a brother. It could be some sort of man who's a friend who's living with her to try to give her, you might say, uh, some sort of cover legally when she needs it. Um, and it's, I don't know why we have to assume there's some sort of sexual relationship to begin with, especially if you th- we don't even know her age. I mean, what no, if this is right. a really, really much older woman? It's not, in the, you know, that they, when a certain woman reaches a certain age, you know, childbearing is no longer an option. But I, I marvel over how quickly we assume that she may have been in a shameful circumstance, according to her, the mores of her time, uh, a woman that's not married. Yeah, it, it's possible. Although, like with the concubine, that that would have been seen as uh, an option, right? I think, right. and with, and also with polygamy, uh, those were were options. Maybe not that everyone would have picked as the top choice. Although, you know, Berenice is willing to be Titus's lover and. You know, he probably had a big house in Rome. So, so the power that went with it as well and her influence. Exactly right. Right, right. All right. And I mean, Berenice is a princess, so that's not an easy parallel to make with our Samaritan woman unnamed uh, in, in a small town in Samaria. But yeah, I think uh, as you were talking, my mind went to Naomi, who had lost both her sons and her husband, and she felt devastated by those circumstances and and maybe felt a shame with that um but the but it and and it may be that others uh at that time looked at the Samaritan woman's misfortunes and not only pitied her but also maybe thought you know is there something going on that God is doing this in her life I mean, the disciples themselves ask a few chapters later in John, who sinned, the uh, the man who was born blind or his parents, you know? And so there is, and today we often look at if someone's having a really rough time, is, is there somehow, are they experiencing the judgment of God, which is um, a very, often a very problematic conclusion to, um, to draw. I... I think the the response of the townspeople is what tends to really guide me in this. They treated her with incredible respect mm. as though she was a reliable source mm. of information mm. on something as important as the savior of the world, which is the title that they give Jesus. It's an amazing title. Very rarely is Jesus called savior in the New Testament, mm. and often because it's the title the Roman emperor used about himself. Yes. <laughs> and so... So they're calling, they're, they're making a a statement about who Jesus is that's a very 
uh, I mean, you can't get much more than uh, savior of the world. And so she was incredibly convincing in her testimony. Yeah, very good. She had credibility. Yeah. yeah, very good. Okay, so let's let's bridge now from the Samaritan woman into other women in Jesus's life, mm-hmm. um, and, and then the and then you know the life and ministry of women in the early church. Uh, just briefly, Lynn. I mean, I mean, you know, Dan Brown made a big uh, bunch of money with a book, right? And and, and now I'm not saying that all of his conspiracy is is to be considered seriously. However, there's one part of the story that's true, and I. I have even wondered, why is it that we assume that Mary Magdalene was somehow some sort of prostitute or sexually immoral person when there's nothing of that in the text? In other words, there seems to be something going on here when in a male-dominant world, even today, we, uh, we somehow want to take the shine off of the glorious work that these women did for their time. Yes, different time, different social structures, honor and shame were operative in ways that are not today. But yet they seem, it seems to me, they rise like cream again to the top of the narrative because they are people of great integrity and great um, influence in the life of their church. That's why they keep to be named over and over again. We know Mary Magdalene. We know Mary and Martha. These are not just kind of curious asides. We we see, not only in the narrative, that they're important for the story. That might tell us something about the, the importance they had even within their own community. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, you're right. Mary Magdalene, um, uh, before we hop into the text, let me just say, I um, I led a group of students. I co-led uh, with a colleague of uh, from Dallas Theological Seminary, Sandra Glan. We led a class on women, the church, and the arts um, this January over in Italy, looking at a number of works of art that highlighted biblical women, but also martyrs and um, like Theodora, one of the empresses. And we were in Florence and I was able to see uh, Donatello's Penitent Mary. I would recommend to any listener to go ahead and Google that, Penitent Mary from Donatello. It's a wooden sculpture. And he depicts with such emotion and pathos um, Mary Magdalene, not the biblical text Mary, though, but there was a whole series of stories that developed in the uh, later church about who she is. And and it drew in part on the assumption that she was um, a prostitute, that that's how she earned her money. And as part of her repentance, she went out into the wilderness and and lived out there. And Donatello captures this. She's emaciated. She's gaunt. Um, it, it it's so striking and powerful. Um, and and at one level, it's it's a beautiful piece of art. At another level, it just breaks my heart that this woman in the biblical text who is a hero of our faith is relegated to being this 
wasted, emaciated, always penitent, never fully forgiven woman. And yeah, Mary Magdalene is introduced in the biblical text in Luke chapter eight as someone who gives out of her own funds Mm. to to Jesus's ministry. And that's totally, women women could have their own um, finances. Uh, they uh, they could receive gifts from their parents, kind of like an inheritance, and they could have their own checking account, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, it it was fine for Mary to be able to to give. She's not the only one. There's a couple of other women that are mentioned there as well. But the other note that Luke says, along with her giving um, as a patron to Jesus's ministry, is that she's healed of seven demons. And that uh, that detail is interpreted by some as, well, she had sexual demons. So that's one. Th- then in Luke chapter seven, right before, I know you're, <laughs> we're, it, it's just mind boggling. Why? Why do I they am, always go there? It uh, makes no sense to me. Because you don't have that evidence in any other demon story. No, right? No, Yep. So that's one that's the so what where the connection with prostitution comes is that in Luke chapter seven, Jesus is at uh, the home, Simon the Pharisee, and a woman comes in uh, who is a sinner and she anoints Jesus's feet. Now, what happened was you that uh, by the late Right, right around 500, by about 500, you had um, the church uh, articulating that Mary, mentioned in Luke 8, is that same woman who is unnamed in Luke 7. And because she's anointing Jesus or she pours, you know, she she washes his feet, that story is then claimed to be the same story as we have uh, in Matthew, Mark, and John, where you have a woman who anoints Jesus's head or Jesus's feet right before his passion. So in John chapter 12, you have Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus's feet. And in Matthew 26, in the parallel passage in Mark, you have, she's not named, but you have a woman who is anointing Jesus's head. I think the story in Luke is a separate story than the one that happens at the end of Jesus's life. So I think twice he had um, a woman who anointed him, but the, the anointings are so different from the Luke to the other gospels that I, I, I just don't see them as parallel, but that's what happened in the context of interpretation. And so Mary Magdalene, became this sinful woman who anointed Jesus. And, and there's just a lot of conflation with that. And again, what happens then is Mary Magdalene, when she's named in the text and when we see her actions of discipleship, she's like muted, as you as you uh, said earlier. We, we don't get the full force of the fact that she's the first person to see mm-hmm. the risen Jesus. Mm-hmm. And there's a and, reason why he appeared to her first. Yeah, <laughs> she's and, I think among she, the most faithful disciples that he that he had. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I heard someone recently tell me that their pastor 
preached on how the women who went to the tomb, which was uh, Jesus's tomb on Sunday morning, were disobedient and lacked faith and all of that because, of course, Jesus was going to be raised. So why did they take the Well, anointing? if the women <laughs> lacked faith, how about the 12 men, the disciples who ran when he was right. arrested? They were nowhere to be found except the beloved one, whoever he was. Yep. So it just, but this is what, ha- it's kind of like you, you the, uh, almost, I sometimes feel like, well, can women do anything right? Right, exactly. Well, and even negative. in that story, the anonymous woman in Luke 7, it simply says she's a sinner. All right? Mm-hmm. Why? It, nowhere does it say that, that, that what her sin is. Nowhere does it say that she was involved in sexual immorality. But isn't it fascinating how that is dumped into that story? And then it's somehow conflated with Mary Magdalene, the chapter eight. And then before you know it, this thing has a life of its own, which is why I think in certain respect, Dan Brown's conspiracy theory had some legs to it, because some of us look around and go, you know, how often does that happen when you have these feminine heroes of either a Jewish religion, the, uh, the story of Israel, or in Jesus's ministry, and even Paul in the early church, and we're so quick to cast dispersion and marginalize their influence, when the biblical narrative just keeps elevating them and say, look, here's the truth of the matter. And especially in the life of Jesus, you could say, in certain respects, the women were more devoted disciples to Jesus than the men. In certain respects, well, I, because well, they follow I, I him, they follow him all the way to the end. They're they're there to make sure he gets the you know the honorable burial. They're there to the very end where the twelve men ran like cowards. So, I I, I think your work is so helpful in not only to try to describe the Greco-Roman world at large and how women did. Some women ra- were you know uh, appeared in high levels of influence. Partly because, and you admit this, because of patronage and because of their, you know, their wealth. But you, that all the more amazing that in the kingdom of Jesus, it's not patronage, it's not wealth. The reason these women rise to such high levels of influence in the life of the of the story of Jesus and how he affirms them, like the story of Mary sitting at his feet, is because they are indeed in the kingdom such an important part of what Christ is trying to do, even to this day. That's ab- that's absolutely right. And I think we see um, in that story in John of Mary of Bethany, um, Jesus invites us to remember her story every time the gospel oh, good is point. preached. And I, and I think that's in part because she, as far as the story goes, she is the one who believes Jesus when he says, I'm going, uh, I'm going to my burial. I thought it was interesting when you look at John in 11 and chapters 11 and 12, in 1116, Thomas says with, I assume a lot of bravado, we're ready to die for you, Jesus in Jerusalem, you know, but Mary conversely is right there with Jesus, knowing his, moment is upon him. And I think the other thing is she saw Jesus raise her brother. So I think there is Lazarus. So I think there is a growing 
faith happening. She doesn't have all the pieces put together. None of the disciples do prior to the resurrection, but but she has seen Jesus work and her sister has heard Jesus say, I'm the resurrection and the life. And they, and so they, she, she has already anointed a dead body and saw it come out of a tomb. Yeah. And so when she anoints Jesus and, and I think uh, anointing, not just his feet, but his head in kind of a kingly Messiah, you are Messiah. There's so much richness in there. And she's demonstrating, I think, for us this trust. Yeah, I can't see everything clearly, but I know that this is going to be somehow all right. And I think that's why Jesus invites us to, when we tell the gospel story, to tell that story. I have suggested she's the first person to get it. She's the first person to get it. She understands how he can be a king even though he gives up his life. And that kingdom is upside down. She gets it. And and isn't, here we go again, Lynn. Here's a story where a woman showing great insight, doing the right thing. There are men around her going, why is she doing this? She's wasting that. And and it just seems to be a paradigm that keeps repeating itself. And I, I've, I've marveled over Mary's um, insight um, that she, and, and I forget why I read this, but some someone had suggested that when he she anointed him with these burial spices, more than he needed for a fitting fit for a king, that everywhere he went from that point forward, he smelled like a dead man walking. Wow! Wow! So that her influence persists. So when she, when he's headed in Jerusalem, he's he's a dead man walking. When he goes before, uh, you know, Herod and the, the religious leaders and the Jews at Pilate. He smells like death. So that her ministry, you might say, lingered, and Jesus saw it for what it was. It's like, okay, the reason it'll be a memorial to her, she gets it. She's the first person to get it, that the kingdom will come through a cross and a death. And uh, I think you're right. She, of course, didn't have everything in her head worked out. But, boy, this willingness to be obedient and to follow her heart and to show great I also think great um, sympathy for him. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. I even take it as, maybe I'm going too far, Lynn, as a mild rebuke to the 12 that she better she better prepare him for burial now because there won't be anybody around that will. That they'll so leave him, so abandon him, that she's going to do what she can while she can. No, I mean, that's possible. There's certainly throughout John's gospel irony. And I think... Thomas saying, we're ready, contrasts very sharply with her legitimate readiness. Fantastic. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, Dr. Kohik, thank you so much. Uh, for uh, joining us in this conversation. Lynn, I could talk with you for another two or three hours. <laughs> oh, me too. I love it. I mean, you know, this is just my thing. So, yes. yeah. So perhaps <laughs> so we'd much. like to have you back. Is that okay? Maybe somewhere down great. the road, we can just pick up the conversation and talk about maybe the life of the, uh, of women and their ministry in the early church and Paul and sure. the significant role they played there. That'd be great. I'd love it. Thank you so much, Rodney. This is it's just so fun to talk about all things Bible with you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we hope you uh, re- return with us and uh, as we talk about what you didn't know about the Bible. <laughs>